Well, open your Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 4. We're looking at a very important passage this morning from Ephesians 4. Really, this, this passage starts in verse 7 and goes all the way through 16. Your Bible probably has it all in one section. And so this is part one. It's, it's all about one thing in this paragraph. This long paragraph is about one thing. Unity through a diversity of Christ's gifts. There's unity in the church through a diversity of Christ's gifts. And so today we're just looking at chapter 4, 7 through 10. And I want to catch you up by reading starting in 4.1. And we'll go all the way through 10. Unity is the point of chapter 4, especially the first 16 verses. We ought to have unity in the church. It's essential. And so Paul starts off with that here in chapter 4. He says, starting in verse 1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, Showing tolerance for one another in love. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. Just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself also. He who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. It's a very important passage in Ephesians. It's near the center of the book for a reason. If you recall, the first three chapters of Ephesians were about doctrine. He was teaching us what happened to us in salvation, how God sovereignly saved us, how Christ redeemed us, how the Spirit lives in us and seals us. Then chapter 2 was about how God brought two people together, Jew and Gentile as one in the church. No division. The dividing wall has been broken down. Chapter 3 was more on that and and even began to see where in chapter 3 Paul says that the angels are watching. That this mystery of how God was to bring two enemies together as one in the church. It's such a mystery that even angels were watching to see how it would be done. Of course we know how it was done. It was done by Christ. It was done by the cross. And after finishing those first three chapters he now switches to what we call the more application half of Ephesians. How do you live this out? Now that you know what's happened, now that you know what's happened to you, what's happened to the church, what God has done in the world to bring about the church, you've got to live it out. You you have to live it out. Live out the truth that you've been given. Uh, Put into practice the doctrine which you know. There's a huge issue in the church today in the true church today, where people study the Bible and study doctrine, but don't practice what they know. Or they might practice it here, but not so much here. Not because they don't understand what's right, 
but they're sort of apathetic, just sitting around thinking somebody else will do that. God will do it for me. Even folks who come here often, they, they want good, solid doctrine. They want expository preaching, eldership, elder, plurality of elder rule. And yet, when it comes to practicing those things and living together as one body, we've seen so many fall by the wayside. We've seen so many men often stumble because they want to learn doctrine, but to live it, well, that's a whole different category, isn't it? You remember in James, it says, be doers, James says, doers of the word, not just hearers. You can read your Bible. You can quote the verses. You can have systematic theology all throughout the Bible pinpointed. But if you don't live it out, then you're not a Christian. If you could care less about living out the Bible, then you're not a Christian. Now, Paul's speaking to Christians. I'm speaking to Christians. He, he is assuming that they're believers, of course, but they need to be encouraged. They need to be prodded. We all need to be prodded. That's one of the reasons we gather. We need to be encouraged. We need to be admonished. We need to be reminded. God's Word prods us. The, the preaching of God's Word, the teaching of God's Word, the singing, the prayers, the Scripture reading. And so he tells them, I implore you to, to walk. To walk in a worthy manner. And he spends the rest of the book talking about how to do that. And it's not just individually. But it's first as a church. Then he talks a little bit about individual relationships in the church. Then he talks about the marriage relationship, the parenting relationship, and eventually our own personal struggle with sin. Too much of the time we're looking at the Bible and then immediately applying it to ourselves individually and just ourselves. But Paul says, the first thing I want to talk about is the church. It's what he's been teaching on in chapter 2 and 3. And so chapter 4 is going to be the application of that. Now that we're one in Christ, what does that mean in the church? And so he's reminding them and he's encouraging them. We don't know that there were any problems in Ephesus when Paul writes. In other letters, there's problems. First and second Thessalonians. They receive some bad news, some bad teaching, and he corrects that. First and second Corinthians, they're, they're living an unholy life and they're listening to false apostles. First Peter, second Peter, Jude. These books deal with the problem. He doesn't say that there's any problems in Ephesus. But he's just reminding them, continue living out a godly life. Live out what you know from Scripture. Well, just to remind you here, he's already said in the first few verses of chapter 4 that we are to bear with one another in humility, gentleness, and patience. In your church, you're not to exalt yourselves. You're not to say, this is what I want and you better do it now. But you're to be humble. And whenever somebody sins against you, whenever somebody annoys you, maybe it's not even a sin, you're to live in a gentle way and have patience with them. And then we spent some weeks looking at the doctrine in verses 4 through 6. As a church, a true church, we are united around the gospel and all the essentials that go with that. The person and work of Christ the person and work of the Holy Spirit, the person and work of God the Father. And we, we unpackaged each one of those passages for three different weeks. Now, we had a bit of a break in between where we all just watched the video, except for me, um, and we were studying other things. But we've now returned, and we looked a few weeks ago at verse 6 and completed the work of the Trinity in unifying us around the essentials.
So now we move on to look at the gifting that the Lord gives us. And sometimes people think this is a separate issue. It doesn't really connect with unity. He's talking about individuals in the church. But there's a diversity of gifts he's going to teach us. And they're given by the Lord to unify the body. Your spiritual gift, and we all have them, your spiritual gift is for the body. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul makes this point. He says, a spiritual gift is for the body. It's for the edification of the body, the building up. He's going to make this point here by the end of this section. Go back to chapter 2, though, and let's look at 19. Just to, still giving you an introduction to what he's about to say. We need to see how he's been working on this idea. In chapter 2, verse 19. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens. You Gentiles aren't a stranger to God's covenant anymore. You're not an alien, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, with the holy ones in the Old Testament. You've been put together. And and you're part of God's household. So he takes this idea of God's household now, and he opens it up. Verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. God is building a building. It's called the church. And he started with Christ the cornerstone. And the apostles and the early church prophets built that foundation. Now, look at verse 21. In whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. That's what we are, a temple in the Lord. The church is a temple, not the building, but the people. And the whole building is fitted together. And in 22, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is building a building called the temple of God, spiritually speaking. And each one of us are a brick in that temple. We're not the foundation, we're not the cornerstone, but we are a brick in the wall. We're a brick in the, in the wall as it gets built up. And to have the building come together, the master planner is designing each brick to fit just right. Which Paul now comes to and says that the gifts that Christ gives the church, the spiritual gifting of every believer, helps that building to fit together rightly. Each believer is an individual brick. Each believer has been trimmed and shaved and shaped just right so that when they're saved, from the moment they're saved even, they can fit in this building, the church. The church, not a building, but a people. Now, these gifts are for the building up of the body. I, I mentioned that that would come up at the end of this section. Look at verse 16. All of these gifts, and he'll get into some of them in, in verse 11. We'll look at those next week. All of these are, are for a purpose. From whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. Again, he's using building architectural language. They're joints in a building. According to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. God's building us up. Each local church is being built up together and the universal church in the world is being built up together. So how does this happen? Well, it happens through spiritual gifts. Of course, God's the one doing the saving And he's also the one giving these spiritual gifts. They're key. They're important. They're not something that you just show up at a church and take a little survey to see what yours might be. 
and then follow that survey or throw it in the trash, whatever you want to do with it. It's not like that. It is a special gifting that God has given each one of us as Christians, and we need to use those gifts. So before he even talks about the office gifts in verse 11 and how they they work together, he wants to give his sermon really on why gifts are important. What's the big deal about gifts? Because we've already, if you remember 1 Corinthians by reading it, I mentioned it, the problems there. The problems in 1 Corinthians are about the gifts. Everybody's boasting about their gifts being better than the next guy. 1 Corinthians comes before Ephesians in the timeline. Paul went through Corinth and he sent a letter back. Later, he sends this letter to the Ephesians while he's in prison. He knows what will happen if people get the wrong idea about gifts. And so God has inspired this section here. Some, some people think it's a commentary really on gifts and what went wrong in 1 Corinthians. But he's inspired this section God has to teach us about the importance of gifts. First of all, he's saying in this section, it's not about you, it's about Christ. Gifts are about Christ. So all my points today will be pointing to Christ. You heard that last week in a sermon, didn't you? Focus on Christ. Well, here's Paul's example of focus on Christ with your gifts. First thing I want you to see here, spiritual gifts are a proclamation of the grace of Christ. When you exercise your gifts, you're proclaiming to anyone that you're serving with that gift, to anyone that that sees you with that gift, you're proclaiming the grace of Christ. It's not just about you. It's not even about the person that you're serving with the gift. It is about proclaiming the grace of Christ first. Verse 7, but to each one of us, each one, Christ has given to every believer a specific gift. It's, it's a double in the Greek. You don't even need each and one. He doubled it up just so people wouldn't think, not me, I don't have a gift. Each one of us, all believers, the apostles that Paul's with himself, the people following him, the Believers in Ephesus, each one of us has a gift. And it's a spiritual gift. No Christians are left out. Everyone has received one. God didn't leave somebody out. God didn't forget someone. Christ did not just glance over someone and not give them a gift. So each one of us has a gift. And he says, to each one of us, grace was given. Spiritual gifts are grace. In fact, the the Greek word in other places like 1 Corinthians is charismata. Charis being grace. A grace gift. Now here he uses a different word in Greek. He's just talking about gifts in general. A donation here is the word. But he uses the word grace, charis. It's a gift of God's grace. You did not come up with your own spiritual gift. You didn't invent it. You didn't give it to yourself. Even exercising it is God's grace. Now, he's not talking about here about saving grace, when God saves a person. Of course, all grace is connected here, but he's not saying what we often think of as saving grace. The fact that God takes a sinner and saves him. He's not even talking here about sanctifying grace, where God continues by his grace to preserve you and sanctify you. 
This is what's often called ministry grace. God's grace, God's unmerited favor to give you the power and the ability to serve others in the church. Ministry grace. We've already talked about this in chapter 3. Go to uh, verse 2, 3, 2. Paul says, if indeed you heard of the stewardship, spiritually speaking, he's been given something to do. A steward would take care of a, a place, a ranch, we might say today, or an estate, a farm. And Paul's been given this stewardship. Not only has God given him grace in saving him and in sanctifying him, but he's given them something to do. A stewardship of God's grace, he says, which was given to me for you. Paul's been given a gift, being an apostle. That's a gift. He'll mention that in, in 4.11. But he's been given a gift, and it's for them. It's for the Ephesians. They, they are saved because Paul went out and used this gift that God gave him. God used Paul as a means to accomplish an end, which is salvation. Look at 3, 7, and 8. He mentions this again. Of which I was made a minister, a servant, particularly a servant of the word according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. It's God who works this through us. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given. What is it, Paul? What's the grace? To preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. So God showed Paul grace because even after Paul was saved and even after he's being made holy, he doesn't deserve to be an apostle. He didn't earn that right, but Christ made him an apostle. He's, he's given grace. He's given a set of gifts to use. So that's what Paul's talking about in 4.7. To each one of us, a grace was given. Each one of us has a, a spiritual gift that's God's grace. We're taken out of the dungeon when we're saved and taken off death row, and we're set free. But not only that, we're not only set free, but God gives us everything to sanctify us in life and to help us grow. And he gives us a job to do and all the tools to do it with. That's what spiritual gifting is. Giving you something to do in the church and he gives you the tools, the abilities to do it. How does Christ divide this up? It says here, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Christ received one gift. This is singular. Christ has one huge gift that he earned. We'll look at that in the next verse. But he's got this huge gift, and he's the one who divides it up. We don't get to decide what gifts we get. We don't get to decide if we get one spiritual gift, or two, or three, or four. We don't get to decide how many of those end up being in this church, on this section. You know, all of you are teachers and all of you are helpers and all of you are administrators. We don't get to do that. Christ divided it up. He measured it out is the idea here. He sovereignly hands them out. And he doesn't do it because of necessarily who you were before you were saved. He didn't say, you know, that Frank, that guy can really teach. So I'm going to make him a teacher of the Bible. I couldn't really teach and God made me a teacher of the Bible. Christ doesn't give according to what we think. He gives according to what he thinks. He thinks that we ought to have certain gifts because it's his purpose. And when I talk about gifts, we're not talking about natural abilities. For example, cleaning or cooking. Those are great abilities. I'm thankful for them. 
I'm thankful they're done in the church when we have a fellowship meal. The church gets cleaned every week. These things happen at my house, cleaning, cooking. We joke sometimes that, that some people have this spiritual gift of shopping. You may have heard that joke. I won't say if I'm talking about male or female here, but some in my house have the spiritual gift of shopping. That's really not a spiritual gift. These are abilities. If you're good at your job, that's a skill. That's an ability. It's a natural ability that God may have given you if you're good at it. We give praise to him. But a spiritual gift is a God-given ability to serve him and other Christians in such a way that Christ is glorified and believers are edified. It's for the building up of the body. It's a God-given ability. Now let's take a quick tour of gifts because there's a lot of confusion about it. This is a very quick tour. We don't have time to go into detail on all of these. Paul doesn't mention them all here. In verse 11, he's going to go through the different gift offices that he gives the church. We'll look at that in a future sermon. But go over to 1 Corinthians 12. And let's start our jet tour there. Twelve four, First Corinthians 12.4. Now there are a variety of gifts. A variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. So one Spirit, the Holy Spirit, gives out gifts, many gifts, to the church. The Spirit gives them, God gives them, Christ gives them. And there are varieties of ministries, ways to serve, and the same Lord. There are a variety of effects, but the same God. So here Paul's using the same Trinitarian formula to work through the church. And he's saying the same God who works all things in all persons, but to each one is given manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So what's the purpose of gifts? It's for the common good. It's not for you. It's not for yourself at home in a closet. It's for the church. Now skip down to verse 8. For one is given to the word of wisdom. And now he starts to talk about different words of prophecy here. And he goes on and lists these different types of prophecy and tongues and gifts of healing, miraculous gifts, gifts that were used to, to point to the gospel, to point to Christ in the early church. And now let's go to verse 14. For the body is not one member, but many. Your body's not just made up of the hand or the eye. It's made up of all the different parts. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, it's not for this reason, any less a part of the body. If the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it's not for this reason that I'm not a part of the body. So the point he's getting at here is everybody is needed in the church with their special gifts, just like every part of your body is needed. Sometimes we lose parts of our body. Sometimes we have to get them cut out because they're diseased. They're all there for a purpose. And Paul says that's the point of the church, all there for a purpose. Now he opens this up more in verse 24. Go down to verse 24. Whereas more presentable members have no need of it, but God, right in the middle of 24, but God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked. So some of us come into the church and we have really no abilities, naturally speaking, but suddenly God gives us when we're saved, he gives us spiritual abilities, spiritual gifts. We were lacking, but he makes up for that. Why? Verse 25, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. 
Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And God is appointed in the church. Now he starts to list some of these gifts. First apostles, we'll look at that next week. Second prophets, we'll look at that next week. Third teachers, we'll also look at that next week, but I'll just give you a hint on where we're going with teachers. Teachers are people who explain the Bible. In, in the New Testament, a teacher is someone who teaches the Bible. And so someone who has that spiritual gift, if we wanted to get a real technical definition, that's somebody who has the ability to grasp, arrange, and present Scripture effectively. And in an organized manner. You want to be organized when you're gifted as a teacher. You don't want to confuse people. That's the gift of teaching that God gives. And the purpose of that is to give a greater understanding of the passage, whatever passage you're teaching on. Well, it continues with the list here. Then miracles. These were miraculous signs to point to Christ, to point to the gospel. We see Christ do those. We see the apostles do those. Then gifts of healings. There's a big debate on even what this is. It's mentioned also in the book of James. Gifts of healings. Helps. What is helps? Well, helps. Now pay attention to these because you might be wondering, what are my spiritual gifts? So we've already talked about teaching. Helps. We'll also see that in Romans 12. That's the gift of helping other believers wherever temporal in this time, in this life, And physical needs arise in connection with the church and the church's ministry. So it's physically helping other believers. Believers in your church, first of all, the Bible says. A person who's gifted loves to do that and they're good at doing that. Often this is our deacons in the church. Uh, But it doesn't just have to be a a deacon, a man. It, It can be anyone in the church who loves to help others physically. They love to do things for other people and serve the church in that way. Then he mentions here administrations. So there's helps. That's physically helping people. Then there's administration or or ruling or, or leading in Romans 12. It has the idea of a special skill and administrative direction that enables the gifted one to steer the flock of God into to channels where they're most effective. It's what an elder has to have. It's a requirement for an elder. Others might have it in the church, but administration is a requirement or leading is a requirement for an elder. Sometimes deacons will have this as well. Those in charge of various ministries. Someone who just loves to take others and direct them where they need to go to serve the Lord in the church. Someone who loves to lead, lead groups, not necessarily teaching, but just leading. That's it for his list here. He also mentions tongues. Let's go now over to Romans chapter 12. There's another list. There's four places where there's a list of gifts in the Bible. Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12, and Romans 12. And he starts to give a list. I won't cover the ones we've already looked at. Romans 12, 3. For through the grace given to me, again, grace, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. That's a problem in the church. We, we start to get prideful. We start to boast. We start to think we're special because we have certain gifts, certain knowledge. But to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Each person is given a measure of faith. Verse 4, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function. Don't be legalistic in the church. 
Don't think because you have a gift and you love it that everybody ought to have it. You wouldn't want me going around telling all of you you need to get up here and preach. That would be wrong. You wouldn't like it. And it would be sinful to even do that. So we who are many are one body in Christ, individually members of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith or the faith. If service, this is helps that we just recently saw. If service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, we've already looked at that. Or he who exhorts in his exhortation. This is a new one. Wasn't in 1 Corinthians. What is exhortation? Well, I'm doing that now. I'm exhorting you to follow the Bible. Exhortation is coming alongside a believer to encourage them, admonish them, to correct them, to comfort them, to strengthen them according to Scripture. To point them to God's Word through those things. Encouragement, comfort, strength, and correction. You often see this in biblical counselors, people who like counseling, those who love to disciple. It's also a requirement for a preacher. A teacher does not equal a preacher. Uh, a preaching is both teaching and exhortation. They both have to go out, explain the passage, and then apply the passage. Exhort people to follow what it teaches. Have you found yours yet? You might have more than one. We don't do surveys around here and then try to plug you into these places. You're to look at Scripture and find out what you think your desires are and try that in the church. He goes on with the list here. Giving. Giving. What is giving? It's a specialized ability to invest material substance into the work of God. And it will reap the maximum spiritual dividends. It's not just throwing your money at ministries out there. Oh, this Christian ministry, we throw some money that way, throw some money this way. No, it's, it's a, an ability to invest more than the average church person would normally give. More than that. And whenever you put it in there, it's with discernment. And that ministry thrives because you're supporting it. And you love to do it. First, of course, your church. Somebody who loves to give to their church. Somebody who loves to support Christian work wherever that is being done, whether it's through the church or not. That is the gift of giving. He also mentions here in Romans, mercy. We haven't looked at mercy yet. It's similar to helps. Helps is more about the physical need and mercy is more about the spiritual and emotional needs and struggles that people have. What is mercy? It's a specialized form of helps that that directs itself in particular to someone experiencing distress, misery, pain, anxiety? Are you the type of person that just loves to get alongside somebody who's going through that? Not necessarily to teach them a Bible lesson, but to just be there with them, to talk with them, to pray with them. Not so much take care of their physical needs, but to know your Bible so well that when you speak and pray and help them, truth is coming out of you. And you're walking with them through this time of pain and suffering. Again, often people who like counseling and discipling have a gift of mercy. That's really it. Outside of the miraculous gifts, these are the ones that he lists. There's one more list, but it's really a summary. First Peter 4. 
I go over to First Peter 4, near the end of your New Testament. And here he just puts them in two categories. First Peter 4.10, it's just two, two categories, speaking gifts and serving gifts. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, that's teaching and exhortation, as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Speaking gift in the church is not just the ability to gab and talk and fellowship and cut up and have fun. It's the ability to teach the word, the utterances of God. Now the other category of gifts are whoever serves. It's to do so as one who's serving. And you do it by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So what kind of serving gifts do we look at? Helps, administrations, giving, mercy. So how do I know what my gift is? Christ has given everybody a gift, Paul says. How do you know? Well, first, what do you love to do? When you come to church, if you could do anything, what would it be? Or what are you already doing that you love to do? Also, just fill in where there's a need. Wherever you see a need, fill in, and maybe your gift will make itself known. It's not like we have the ministry of helps or the ministry of administration. Those are gifts that are used in various ministries in the church. Also, you could ask people who are close to you, your spouse, your friends, others in the church. Every time a new member comes into our church, we ask them what they did in their previous church, if they had one, and what they'd like to do here. And we, we start trying to work people into different places where they can use their gifts. Everyone gets a gift. What's it for? To demonstrate Christ's grace to us. To proclaim that. If you're not using your gift, you're not proclaiming the grace of Christ fully in the church. This isn't just about you and the person that you're not serving. It's about Christ. You're not using your gift. He's not getting the glory for it. That was all number one. Number two. Spiritual gifts are a proclamation of the victory by Christ. The victory by Christ. Not only did Christ give us grace, but he won a great victory. And we need to be proclaiming that as we use our gifts in the church. Now to prove that, in Ephesians 4.8, he's going to cite from Scripture. Anytime you want to prove your case, Cite from Scripture. Paul doesn't need to because he is writing Scripture in Ephesians, but he will often go back to the Old Testament and prove his point. And he's going to quote indirectly, loosely, from Psalm 68. Many commentators sort of have a fit about this quote. They say Paul changed it. Paul's getting his source from somewhere else. No, he's just loosely quoting the whole Psalm, really, by citing one verse. And it's a loose quote, so it's not meant to be direct. In ancient times, they didn't have to footnote everything. You know, in, in seminary, these guys that recently graduated that I mentioned, they have to footnote everything and put the exact source and page number and what year it was published and where it was published. Not the way it works in the Bible. He just quotes the verse, and if you know it, you would know it. And if not, you would come across it in your Bible someday. Well, this is a huge passage. It's very important to understand. This is really the linchpin of Ephesians. You need to know what happened in the life of Christ 
that allowed him to give these gifts. We just say, you know, he's God. He can do what he wants. He gave us gifts. Paul says, no, no, it's bigger than that. It's in the Old Testament. It's in a whole psalm that no one would have probably thought of when they read Psalm 68 until Paul wrote this. And he's saying, look, the whole thing, Psalm 68, points to Messiah, points to Christ. So we got to go back to Psalm 68. We got to do a, a quick study of Psalm 68. Otherwise, we don't understand what Paul's doing here. And this is one of those passages, by the way, that I'm preaching today from Ephesians that if you're not going verse by verse, you just skip it. Because now you've got to go back to the Old Testament. You've got to cover all of that and say what Paul's been doing. And it's, it's challenging. It's difficult. I probably spent more time on this than I have in the last three or four sermons. Just studying here what Paul's doing and how he's trying to use it. Psalm 68. We'll just look at a few verses. But, but the psalm is about God's victory. It's about God being victorious as a king. It's written by David. So David knows what it is to be a king. He knows what God has done for his people. David's already taken Jerusalem and probably brought the ark up as well. And he's planning the temple. Psalm 68 verse 1, Let God arise. Let his enemies be scattered. And let those who hate him flee before him. See how it's, a, it's about God as a conqueror. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish before God. But let the righteous be glad. Let them exult. That means worship before God. Yes, let them rejoice with gladness. Sing to God. Sing praises to His name. Lift up a song for Him who rides through the deserts. You know who rides through the deserts in ancient times? Conquerors. When people wanted to conquer Israel, they crossed the desert either coming out of Egypt or coming out of Babylon or even from Assyria. But it's God who's the conqueror. He's the one who rides in his chariot through the desert, whose name is the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant name of God in the Old Testament. Exult before him. Now, David's not writing this psalm about one battle. He's just saying God's a conqueror for his people from beginning to end. From beginning to end, God rides out in his chariot and he conquers his enemies. Now remember, he's pointing to Christ. He's pointing to Christ. But David's going back and he's saying, even from the beginning, God rides out as king and he will have the victory. In verses 7 and 8, he talks about the victory over Egypt. Oh God, when you went forth before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, this is after they came out of Egypt, the earth quaked on Mount Sinai. The heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself quaked. It shook at the presence of God, the God of Israel. So God had victory over Egypt. He, he smashed the armies of Egypt. He brought them out. He saved them. Verse 17. The chariots of God. That's the tank in ancient times. The most massive, destructive thing you can have in this time period that David writes is a chariot. And God has many of them. And God is a great conqueror. And the chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them at Sinai in holiness. So he conquered the chariots of Egypt easily. Now skip over to verse 18. David comes up to his own time. David has taken Jerusalem by God's power, by God's help. And in verse 18, it says, you have ascended on high. 
you, God, have, have ascended. Now that we've taken Jerusalem, you've come up. The ark has come up to Mount Zion. You ascended on high. You led captive your captives. It's you, God. It's not me, David, who did this. It's God who did this. And he captured and took captive people. This is the verse that Paul quotes. You have received gifts among men. So God receives gifts. He receives the praise, the glory among men. Even among the rebellious also, that the Lord God may dwell there. So God has ascended. This is the verse Paul quotes. We'll come back to it. Now skip to the end here, verses 30. And th- through 32. It's not just God in the Old Testament in Egypt and in Jerusalem, but all the way through the end of time, through the end of the Bible, through Revelation, God is conquering. Rebuke the beasts and the reeds, even the animals. The herd of bulls with the calves of the peoples. People who act like animals. Trampling underfoot the pieces of silver. Money means nothing because God conquers. He has scattered the peoples who delight in war. Envoys will come out of Egypt. And Ethiopia, Cush, and will quickly stretch out her hands to God. They've been conquered. Those who are left are worshiping God. This is speaking of the return of Christ as God conquers the whole world. Sing to God. Same way he started the psalm, sing to God. But look, at the beginning it was Israel sing to God. Now it's sing to God, O kingdoms of the earth. Sing praises to the Lord. God's going to conquer everything. Of the whole earth. So back to 18. God's ascended, David says. He takes captive, captives, and, and he receives gifts. Gifts are the spoils of war. Whenever a king conquered, he took captives for slaves, and he took spoils of war, all the treasure that could be gathered up. So God receives a great spoil. But what happens to it? You've got to know the whole psalm. We didn't read these. Go back to verse 11, though. The Lord gives the command. The women, now women aren't the ones going out fighting at this time. The women who proclaim the good tidings are a great host. There's a lot of women proclaiming the good news that the victory has been won. Kings of armies flee. They flee. They run away from God. And she who remains at home will divide the spoil, the treasure. The gifts are divided by people who didn't even fight. And in ancient times, it was the men. The men went out and fought. They got the treasure. They divided it. But now it's so plentiful. There's so much of it that even the women at home are dividing up the spoil, the treasure. So even though God receives the gifts from men in verse 18, where's the gifts going? Where's the treasure going? Back out to the people. God receives. God gives it back out. Look at verse 6. God makes a home for the lonely. He leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. So the people that have been imprisoned by the enemies, he sets them free. And only those who have rebelled against God are going to be somewhere else, in a bad place, in a parched land. So what's the point? What's the point of Psalm 68? That God has come and declared a victory once and for all. And David's just saying, the whole Bible basically teaches us God will win, God has won, God is winning, God will win. God will win. God's victory is once and for all. He's conquered, he's ascended on high, he's given many gifts to be distributed and accepted. 
That's why Paul's quoting it. This is exactly what David said in the Old Testament, Paul says, that we are proclaiming the victory that Christ won. How did he win a victory? Ephesians 4.8, Paul quotes, when he ascended on high, Christ ascended. He rose from the grave and he eventually ascended, didn't he, to the right hand of the Father after his resurrection. That's a great victory. It's said in Philippians 2 that he humbled himself to come to the earth. And now at the end of Philippians 2, it says that he was actually raised up and that every knee will bow because he sits at the right hand of God the Father. He was ascended on high. He led captives, a host of captives. Some people think these are the believers that he saved, but I think it's better to take it as the enemies. And in, in, in Psalm 68, God conquered enemies and took them captive. And Ephesians has been all about the principalities and the evil forces and Satan and the evil forces that surround the Ephesian Christians. What did Christ do? Well, in his death and his resurrection and his ascension and everything that centered around the cross, he took all those evil forces captive. Remember Satan's head being crushed? Satan's head being crushed in Genesis 3? He's still here. He's not in prison somewhere and locked up. Satan's still running about, but he's he's injured. He's severely injured. He's got a death sentence. He's got a terminal illness. He's going to die when Christ returns. He's going to be thrown into the lake of fire. Paul says something similar in Colossians 2.15. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities... He made a public display of them. What rulers and authorities? The evil forces, demons, angels, uh, fallen angels, Satan. Public display, having triumphed over them through him. You're a king in ancient times. You go conquer. You come back to your hometown. You go like the Romans did through Rome. And you've got this train, this triumphal procession. And it's got the slaves that you took captive. And it has all the treasure. And they show it off to the people. That's what's happening here. Christ, in his work on the cross, Paul says, he took all the evil forces captive. They thought they ran the earth. They thought they had control over it. But it was just temporary. And he gave gifts to men. Instead of in Psalm 68 where he received gifts, here Paul says he gave gifts to men because that's the idea of Psalm 68. What gifts? The spiritual gifts that you have. Christ won those in a victory. That's the point. The spiritual gifts in the church come from Christ. Why? Because he won them. Not just because he's God, of course. But in the Bible, what Christ came to do earned those things for us. He won them in the flesh on the cross. He fought the war against Satan. He won. As if Satan would ever win anyway. But the point is he came and did exactly what Genesis 3. He crushed the snake's head. Later, read 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 17. We don't have time to go there. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 17. And it describes exactly what we're looking at here. The whole point of Ephesians, really, the whole book of Ephesians is Christ has accomplished a victory. And that means something for us. And it means something for the church. And we're supposed to know what it is and live it out. The king is conquered. So when you exercise your gifts, you're saying that Christ conquered and gave me that gift through his victory. But if you're not exercising your gifts, then you're not really showing that. You're not saying with your actions that Christ conquered. It's not about you. The gifts is not about you. It's about Christ. You've got to focus on Christ as you serve him 
And you do that through exercising the gifting that God has given. That's the main thing. You want to grow as a believer? Exercise your gift in the church. We all grow together. As each person grows, we all grow. You've heard the the weakest link in the chain, right? You, You can't be any stronger than that weakest link. It's the same in the church. We all need to grow together. No one's left behind. Everyone growing. Everyone exercising their gifts. Number three, this will be quick. Number three, spiritual gifts are a proclamation now of the ascension of Christ. The ascension. We proclaim that he gave us grace. We proclaim his victory when we use our gifts. And we proclaim that he's actually ascended. That means he's not here. He's not walking among us. He's with God. He's at the right hand of God on the throne. That's verses 9 and 10. It's really Paul's commentary here. Paul's just making a commentary. He's saying, in case you didn't get it with Psalm 68, and it is hard for us to get it because it's, it's a difficult way that he's laid it out and we see the translation in English. It's difficult. But 9 and 10 explains it. Now this expression, he ascended. He went up. He ascended. What does it mean? What's the point? What does it mean? Except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth. We always say what, what goes up must come down. On the Bible, what comes down, Christ, must go back up. Christ doesn't stay down. He doesn't stay on the earth. He goes back up. He ascends. And so Paul says, look, there is a going down here. He had to descend first. Then he could ascend later. What does he mean by lower parts of the earth? That's the key here. Many will say this is Christ going to Hades. Christ went to hell. You might have heard Christ went to hell from the time he died until the time he was resurrected. And about the 600s, it it came out in a a thing called the Apostles' Creed. Before that, the Apostles' Creed did not have that phrase. And Christians, you might have even heard that if you've been in like a Presbyterian or Anglican, they'll recite the Apostles' Creed, Christ descended to Hades. Well, there's no indication of that in the Bible. 1 Peter 3 speaks of Christ proclaiming victory over spirits, but he's talking about evil spirits who are locked away probably from Genesis 6. No, the lowest parts of the earth. We're on the earth, and the lowest parts are anything underneath the surface. When did Christ go underneath the surface? When he died. Just like Philippians 2. He descended. He humbled himself. He died on the cross. He was buried. That's as low as you can get, to be killed, murdered like that, and buried. And then he was resurrected. He came out of the tomb. He came up. Eventually, he ascended all the way to be with God. Verse 10, he who descended is himself also he who ascended. He came down, he went back up. And that's good because he's far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. We looked at this verse, fill all things, this phrase back in chapter 1. Christ is in the highest heavenlies. He's in the highest heaven. There's the atmosphere. That's first heaven. Second heaven is space. And then the heaven where God is is the third heaven, Paul says. Just heaven, the heavenlies. He's there. Why? So he can give gifts. So he can rule over his church. So he can wait for the time when God says that all the enemies will be a footstool to Christ. We should be happy that Christ ascended. What did he say? If I don't ascend, then you don't get the Holy Spirit. If I don't go, you don't get the Holy Spirit sent to you, which means you don't get the spiritual gifts. You don't get the sealing. You don't get the preservation. If you're not using your spiritual gifts, you're not proclaiming that Christ has fully ascended. 
I know in your mind you believe he ascended if you're a believer. But you've got to use these gifts. You've got to serve others. Every time you exercise your gifts, the ones that I went through, determine what you have, use them. You're saying these things to others. That Christ gave you grace. That he accomplished the victory. That he conquered the enemy. And you're saying that he's ascended. That's the only way he could give you gifts. He had to, he had to go back up. To Paul, simple argument. To us, we've got to dig a little. What's the point? If we want to be one as a church, we've got to be built up. God's building us up, but we are also expected to do our part. Sanctification is God working through us, not for us. He's not doing it. He's not saying, here you go, sit back and take a vacation. In justification, God does all the work. In sanctification, God works through us. We are doing work. And a main part of the work in the church is exercising our gifts. Serving one another through speaking or the serving gifts that he mentions. All this, though, all this was accomplished through the cross. So when we take the Lord's Supper in the minute, think about that. Think about what Christ won for you. Think about what Christ won for you. There's so much. There's so much to, to list. But one of those is your spiritual gifting. The ability that God has given you to serve. Lord, we do pray, we bow before you, that you would make known to us our spiritual gifts so that we can serve you, so that we can honor Christ. Give us opportunities to exercise them. Help us, Father, to honor you in such a way that we want to exercise these gifts. Let us grow better and better at using them, more skilled. Lord, continue to give us your grace as we minister and serve others. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.